Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. Luke 1 and 2 will be our base text for these next four weeks. And I urge you to be reading Luke 1 and 2. You can, they're very long chapters, but you can read them in minutes. And I would challenge you to read Luke 1 and 2 each day for the next month and see how fresh that can be to you in anticipation of our tracing out the theme of mercy throughout Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2. Luke 1, Luke 2. This morning we'll be reading Luke 1, beginning in verse 39 and going to verse 36. This, as I mentioned, for the Advent season is also the preaching text. A little bit different than our usual format, but the text that is read out of the gospel will also be the text used for teaching. Luke 1, 39 to 56, the title of our teaching this morning is His Mercy is for Those Who Fear Him. His Mercy is for Those Who Fear Him. Let us give our undivided attention to the reading of God's Word, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Can you imagine? Why is this granted to me, says Elizabeth, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment, a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And this is what Mary said. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy in his, is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thought of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father God, as we turn our attention now to the proclamation of this word, we ask, Father, for your guidance and for your blessing over it. We pray that by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God himself who who wrote this Bible, who preserved this word for us to this very day and has now made it available to us here, November 26th in the year 2020, to no surprise at all to the Godhead. You have given us a word in season, a dark season, O oh God, and we need the light of Christ to, to radiate among us. O oh, Father, how beautiful are the words that I read even this morning that reminded me that the, the, the mission of the church, as Peter said, is to proclaim the excellencies of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
It is not primarily to get entangled in the day's events. It is not primarily to speak to those situations that are fleeting and will one day be made new. No, our primary call is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what, what makes us the church. It is what makes us unique. We can get news literally anywhere else in the world. The only place we can get the gospel is the church of Jesus Christ. And so may we be the church. May we be the one that sets up the excellencies of Jesus, proclaims him unashamed, without fear, in a way that others are drawn to him, where others see the shallowness of the world around us, even the darkness around us. And they put it in a proper perspective, even as we learned last week, Father, in view of God's mercies, we are to worship. We are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy, pleasing to you, dear God, because of what Christ has done on our behalf. When you, our Father, see our brother Jesus, you see us in him, all of his goodness credited to our account. Dear God, with the saints of old, we put our hands over our mouths and we humble ourselves before you. For these dear saints that you've brought together here this day, Father, I pray for your hand of blessing to rest upon them, that you would renew them, that you would give them fresh strength in the days to come, dear God, that you would encourage their hearts in a particularly discouraging, frustrating time in our world. We pray, Father, for you to bring order to the chaos that surrounds us, the chaos in our own hearts, perhaps even in our own homes, certainly in our city, in our country, certainly in the world. We know you are the one, Father, as the scriptures tell us, to whom all nations will come. All nations will bow. All nations will confess your lordship over all things. Oh, how we long for that day, perhaps even more so in the midst of a pandemic. But may our eyes never be taken from you. May our eyes be fixed on Jesus the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and despised the shame, is now reigning at your right hand and will one day return in splendor and glory. And those who are in Christ will live eternally with him. Those who are apart from him will be eternally separated from him. Dear God, let it be that not one of these, your creatures that you've created in your image here this day, leave apart from knowing the wonder, yes, of the Christ child, but of the wonder of why that Christ child came. May each and every one of us, Father, come with all of our baggage, all of our hurt, all of the wrongs that we have experienced, and give them to you that you might transform them and make us new with your healing, with your goodness, with your mercy. Be merciful to us, O oh God. For we ask it humbly in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. Amen. Amen and amen. Happy New Year.
I always mess people up a little bit when on the Sunday after Thanksgiving, I shout Happy New Year. It, you stop and think, I know it's been a rough year, but is it really January 1st today? Is it really midnight on December 31st? No, it's not. But you know I talk a lot about the calendars that we talk that we use, the school calendar, the traditional calendar, and also the church calendar. Well, today is the first Sunday of the new Christian year. And I've told you repeatedly of how much I like the Christian calendar because it builds our life entirely around the life of Jesus Christ. And so the new year starts with Advent, four weeks historically that the church sets aside to reflect upon the miracle of the birth of Jesus Christ and its meaning, not only for you and me individually, but also for us historically. So, Happy New Year to each and every one of you. Way more exciting than a ball dropping somewhere. Happy New Year ought to come to us as words of comfort, as words of encouragement, words, I don't know about you, but I receive them eagerly, Given the ongoing struggles of this year, 2020, some of us are eager to get to 2021, but then there are others around us who remind us that 2021 is going to probably be a fair bit like 2020, although we're hoping not as long. It is a year that will not be forgotten. I wrote these words, they just kind of rolled off my uh, keyboard yesterday, a year that won't be forgotten in our lifetimes. And I literally sat back for a second. And I thought about that because it's almost a cliche, you know, but, but it, it really struck me. Think about it, right? You, you and I will not forget living through a pandemic, regardless of how much longer you live. It's that kind of magnitude. It's that, it's that kind of memory that exists. We'll be telling this story like they talk about the flu or, or the pandemic of 1918. They look back on it in history so that we might learn something about this one that is now existing in our midst. We will be talking about this till the day that we die. If you're like me, there have been countless times, and I mean countless times, over the past eight months when you've prayed or at least thought, Lord, have mercy. It's a three-word prayer. It is a prayer. It is a legitimate prayer. It is as legitimate a prayer as you locking yourself in your closet, on your face, on your hands and knees, and praying to the Lord for half an hour. Crying out to the Lord, part of praying at all times and praying without ceasing. Lord, have mercy is a prayer that the Lord responds to. It is who he is. He's merciful. You heard it in the psalm this morning. You'll hear it in other places as well uh, today. Lord, have mercy when you see the news and you hear the stories. Christians, moved by the Holy Spirit, appeal to God's goodness. When you're in Christ, you have this innate sense that God is good and that you cry out and you want to see and you want to know his goodness. It is, the, in fact, the definition of mercy, and it's one that I really hope that you gain because we'll repeat it each of the coming weeks as we did even last week. Christians, moved by the Spirit, appeal to God's goodness and his compassion to provide relief to the weaknesses and failings of his children. That's the textbook definition of mercy. Now, I know most of you have heard mercy described as not getting what you deserve and grace getting what you don't deserve. That's good. That's not bad. But when you dig in, which we're going to do, mercy is broader than simply not getting what you deserve. It's not less than that, but it's certainly more than that. Mercy is God's goodness 
and God's compassion, providing relief to the weaknesses and failings of his children. That's a banner statement. That's a, that's a statement you want on your refrigerator. It's a statement you want everywhere in your house. God's goodness and compassion providing relief to the weaknesses and failings of his children. It's literally the definition of mercy, particularly as we have it in the New Testament. And it is our theme of this holy Advent season. So if you get nothing out of the next month, out of the next four weeks, I want you to take that home and to know that God is merciful, that he's good and that he's compassionate and that he desires to bring relief to the hurts of his people, of his children. So with Zechariah, whom we'll look at, God willing, next week, we rejoice and we rest in the tender mercy of our God. A phrase we'll be looking at more in depth next week. Tender mercy. Like, like Zechariah needed to say tender. Like mercy itself is not enough. He modifies it. With tender mercy, we rest as well as we proclaim and we rejoice over that. That's what I'm praying for you this month, that we rest and rejoice in the tender mercy of our God because we need a message like this. We need messages like this being bombarded with literally death hour after hour and day after day. It's not to shove it all aside and to pretend that it's not there. No, I never say that. I never say, check your problems at the door. You come to church with your problems. Because it's only in coming with your problems and recognize the heaviness of any given moment, your need for mercy, your need for the goodness and compassion of God to take you out of the place that you're in and to bring you where he wants you to, where he wants you to be. So with Zechariah, we rejoice and we rest in the tender mercy of our God because he is, this is what Luke 178, 79 says. This is Zechariah's song. Jesus Christ is the sunrise He's the sunrise that has visited us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is why Advent is often thought about as being dark. Because you look at your surroundings, whether it's 2,000 years ago or today, and you see the darkness of the world around you, and it's into that darkness that the light of all of the world has come in. Jesus Christ himself. It's no wonder why the writer, the early writer of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, would use these verses to write these words, O come, thou dayspring. That's what the King James Version says in the place of sunrise. O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee O Israel, that'd be an amazing song to open next Sunday's service with. I'm just saying. We begin today, however, with Mary. Dear Mary. Rachel, how old are you? You have four to say it again? 15, 14, 15 next month. You, you may be about the age Mary was just to give you a little bit of context. Maybe another year or so, but not much older than that. We begin today with Mary. There are two things I want you to see about Mary that God would have for us this very day. We're going to look at her song and the setup for that song here. I want you to see the merciful blessing of Mary, 39 to 45. Those are the verses, 39 to 45. And then I want you to see the merciful song of Mary, 
That's what the Lord would have us see today. The blessing, and as you can readily see right now, when you come to understand the degree to which you've been blessed, you can't help but sing. You can't help but worship, which is exactly what we saw last week, setting up Advent. In view of the mercies of God, worship. Birds fly, fish swim, Christians worship. The merciful blessing of Mary, verses 39 to 45, and the merciful song of Mary, verses 46 to 56. Let's look at those two brilliant categories and swim in the ocean of the mercy of the Lord. Luke opens his orderly account. I love Luke. Luke, Luke is a medical doctor. We know that Paul tells us in his letters that Luke's a medical doctor. And I, I like that, not that I was ever a medical doctor, but having worked in the world of engineering for a number of years, uh, there are overlaps. Doctors, except for their handwriting, tend to be very orderly and, 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 and thinking through processes and systems and so on and so forth. Engineers do the exact same thing. So I, I resonate a lot with Luke. Luke likes order. And Luke has put the Gospel of Luke and the book, his part two, the book of Acts, together in an orderly way. Why? Because he's got a friend. He's got a friend. His name is Theophilus. The, the word literally breaks down Theo. Philos, love God. He's a God lover. Some people say we might not have been a real person, might just have been to any person who loves God. Here's this account. Any way you want to slice it. I happen to believe that Theophilus was a real person and that Luke was a buddy of his. And that Theophilus, young in the faith, wanted to know more about Christ and his ways and the expansion of the church. So Luke says to his buddy Theophilus, I'm going to put together an orderly account. Other people have done it. I'm going to do it too. So I'm going to collect the records. I'm going to put it in order. And I'm going to write this account for you. And I'm going to present it to you. That's in Luke 1, 1 to 4. Luke tells us right out the gate what, he's, what it is that he's doing. So the entire gospel of Luke is a love letter to a friend about who Christ is in an orderly way. And you're going to, you're going to give an orderly account of a person's life. You probably should start with their birth. That's exactly what Luke does. So he begins his orderly account with a baby shower invitation. Baby shower invitations for both JB, John the Baptist, as well as Jesus. But here's what I want you to note. In both of those announcements, they display God's initiative. We need to be sure we get that straight. Throughout the Bible, God takes the initiative. You don't come to Christ on your own initiative. You weren't created by your own initiative. God takes the initiative he has brought you into this world. He has numbered the days of, of your life. And the same is true here in the lives of Zechariah, Elizabeth, and Mary. They're the main players. They're the ones that are on this stage as the curtain opens in the life of Jesus. Now, let's, let's be clear. Advent series go bad when we make them all about everybody else except Jesus. I love Mary. I love Zechariah. I love Elizabeth. I, I, I love the smelly stall. I love the animals that are there but they're not the point of the story. All these characters have meaning because they relate to Jesus. So if you're listening to Advent series and Christmas stories this year, and it's all about how wonderful Mary is, or it's all about Simeon and Anna and so on and so forth, and you don't get any Jesus, be careful. Those are all great, but make sure they answer the question for you, what do they have to do with Jesus? God's initiative in the lives of Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary. God is at work. 
fulfilling his grand plan, even if we can't always understand it. I do that because I'm one that wants to understand. I want to know. And I will occasionally, not literally, but in my mind's eye, stamp my foot and demand that God tell me what it is that he's doing in any given moment. Guess what? Most of the time he says, nah-uh. But then he asks me, will you trust me? That's a lot of what's going on right here. There's a lot of unknown in these characters. They're confronted by the archangel Gabriel. Can you imagine? Gabriel communicates. And then they say, ah, bah, 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 and Gabriel goes, ah, 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 ah. It's a word from the Lord, you obey. Let's take that to heart. Because some of you are sitting in this room and you're not that far apart from what I'm like and that you make inordinate demands of God to tell you what it is that he's doing on any given day. He's God, you're not. Secret things belong to the Lord. And as one of my mentors used to say regularly, at any one moment God's doing 10,000 things. You might know three of them. And you might not even know three of them. But he is at work and he is faithful. God is fulfilling his grand plan even when it cannot always be understood. Like in the world right now. You know how many times I've been asked in the last eight months, Father, wow. <laughs> no, I, no, no. The number of times I've been asked in the last eight months whether or not I thought this was the end. And I said, well, sure, it's the end. I mean, we've been in the end for 2,000 years. But what extremes some people have gone to, utterly persuaded that this pandemic is, this is it. Maybe, maybe not. God hasn't told me. And I'm really concerned when I hear people claiming that he's told them. There are some things we will not understand about the Lord's will, even in times like this. But this is why we have these stories. In the respective reveal parties, we see an interesting contrast in belief. Look at verse 18 with me, if you would, please. Luke chapter 1, verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife's advanced in years. And the angel said, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you'll be silent, unable to speak, until the day that these things take place, namely the birth of your son Jesus, even though you're both ancient, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, sounds a little harsh. It sounds on the face of it that Zechariah is just merely asking a question. Gabriel, sent from God, you're now talking to me. You're telling me in my old age. See, see this, is, this, is where I think, this is where I think the, the, the sting is in the tail, if you please. Zechariah is a priest. He should have known better. I mean, what was the first thing a priest should have been drawing to mind when he's encountered by an angel and he's told that he ancient as he is, and his wife, ancient as she is, is going to have a child. You're a priest now. You're a religious person. You've been around the temple your entire life, and you hear a story from an angel about a birth coming to a couple that's too old to give birth, 
what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Abraham, you're, you're a priest for heaven's sakes. Gabriel says and identifies that as unbelief. And so he doesn't get struck down, but he gets silenced. Now, watch what happens, because Luke, Luke, the orderly one, is doing this on purpose. Now, watch what happens, verse 38 of Luke chapter 1, scene shifts now, shifts from the temple now to the hinterland, and young Mary, Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word, and the angel departed from her. Luke has juxtaposed Zechariah the priest and Mary the teenager. And he's shown us two responses. The religious guy gets it wrong. He does not believe. The teenage girl gets it right. And you know what she says? She says, your will be done. That's essentially her answer. I don't need to know the details. I don't know everything that's going to get worked out. Mary is an example of a simple trust in the revealed word of God. She trusted the revealed word of God. She simply said, your will be done. I don't know what's going on in her head. Lord knows I have to enter into the minds of too many 12, 13, 14-year-old girls given my second job. Mary's not one I'm going to try to psychoanalyze. But I'm going to love her simple faith and trust in the revealed word of God. Be it to your servant according to your word. Mary then, the story goes on, Mary then visits her relative Elizabeth, in, in my opinion, one of the Bible's most heartwarming scenes. Can you imagine? The scene overflows with joy, with blessing. You, you heard it. Those days Mary arose, went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. We don't know everything that's been communicated up to this point in time. But man, what happens when this woman walks into the house? Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary. The baby leapt in her womb. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaimed with a loud voice. She didn't whisper it. She's, she's rejoicing with a loud voice. Bless, can you imagine? Here's dear Mary just walking through us. Hey, cousin Elizabeth, how's it going? Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why has it been granted to me, the mother of my Lord? Hama, what? The mother of my Lord should come to me, for behold, when the sound of greeting came to your ears, baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary makes this trek. Elizabeth's filled with the Holy Spirit. John in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. Make no mistake about it. Where Jesus is, there is joy. Where Jesus is, even Jesus in the womb, Jesus the fetus, Jesus the yet-to-be-born child, still brings joy when presented. There's a whole sermon here on the sanctity of human life, which will be for another day. This child in the womb, supernatural, child in another womb, responding to that. It's a staggering reality. It really ought to cause us to take a step back and to give thought and prayer, meditation to it, particularly in this holy Advent season. 
at least as importantly as that, is Elizabeth, it's a three-peat, three-peated blessing of Mary. Three times. In verse 42, blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then the third time, verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary is no ignorant teenager. Mary, we're going to see in just a moment, knows her Bible frontwards and backwards. And she knows, young child that she is, that she's part now of a plan. She doesn't know the details, but she sees in that an unfolding of a grand plan. How about you? How about me? Do we realize that we're part of an unfolding grand plan? And that the circumstances of our lives of our lives are ordained by the Lord moving to that supreme goal. It's hard to see in a day and age like ours, but wherever you are right now, whether you're young or whether you're old, the circumstances of your life are being used of the Lord to draw you to him. To be able to celebrate with a person like Mary who anticipated this because she knew the word of God. That's a profound reality. So many times I talk to Christians that are just befuddled by things, and it turns out that it's just a, a profound ignorance of what the Word of God says. One of the things I'm learning over and over and over again, particularly as this pandemic exposes more and more of the inner workings of my heart and the hearts of those around me, is that we do an awful lot of inordinate suffering because we don't know the Word of God. It was Jesus himself who chided some of his naysayers. Aren't you mistaken because you don't know the word of God? It's one of the things that I have been increasingly diligent about praying in my own life and in your life as well, that we would be a person, we would be a people who would love the word of God. I mean, reading it systematically, not daily bread, as important as that might be, three or four weeks into the Christian faith. Sorry if I've upset anybody with that. But that's a pick and choose. Or here's a little devotional today, and here's a cool story for now. Oh, and that gets me through with my worry and my anger and so on and so forth. I'm not making light of that, but if that's the diet, it's akin to you having a stock of broccoli a day and saying you're, you're well fed. The Word of God ought to be in us. We ought to be able to interpret the world around us. It's one of the things that's driving me out of my mind right now. How many people are developing worldviews. Remember I said last week, liturgy, we all have a liturgy of life. I have talked to more Christians in the last eight months whose worldview is informed by Fox News than the Word of God. It's part of the reason why churches are divided about whether or not we'll wear face masks. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessing sung over Mary, yes, for her faith, but even more importantly, even more importantly, for the privilege of bearing the Son of God. Hmm. Let me say, sidebar here, before we move on to Mary's, to the response to the blessing that's been pronounced over Mary. A, a, a quick sidebar, and I do, I do this annually, uh, because many of you who have come out of Roman Catholicism scoff at any idea of Mary having any sort of prestigious place 
in the Christian church. And I'm here to tell you that we Protestants do a really good job of swinging the pendulum. We've come out of Roman Catholicism and we've seen the worship of Mary. We've seen the prayers to Mary. We've seen Mary as, as a co-redeemer with Jesus. And that's, that's all wrong. We confess that it's not biblical. Many of our Roman Catholic friends continue to believe that. And it breaks my heart that they don't feel like they've got immediate access to Jesus Christ for what he's done. We have direct access to Christ. We don't need a mediator. We don't need a priest. We don't need Mary. We don't need a saint. Because of what Christ has done for us, we have direct access to the throne, and that ought to stun us every day. But we Protestants don't talk about Mary at all. Mary ought to be revered. She is a major player in the scriptures, not worshipped. But passages like this that hold her up and put her under such spotlight give us such an example of such simple trusting faith in the revealed world of God that we do, we do injustice to her and to the word and to our own souls. If we say, yeah, 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 Mary, 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 it's all about Jesus. We know it's all about Jesus, but there are other players around him that get us to him. She's one of them. So let's, let's not pray to Mary. Let's not worship Mary, but let's not throw Mary under the bus either. Mary has this blessing pronounced over her. And as I said earlier, when, when you've been blessed by the Lord, you've got one response. I, I've been in your presence where you have known the blessing of the Lord and you have in front of me started worshiping God, telling me how good God is. Many of you do that as well. When you come to understand, when your soul wells up, when your understanding of the blessing of the Lord, you can't but help do something, right? You may not have beautiful voices. You may not be able to cite scripture all over the place. You may not be able to do X number of things, but that's not what's most important and what you ought not to be focusing on. Instead, your response, wow, God, thank you, God. Lord, have mercy, God. Those are all acts of worship that he receives as though you were the best trumpeter in the world, as though you had the voice of Pavarotti. I'm going to show you where I'm going to get that in just a second. So this is what Mary does. Mary rejoices. She sings. Now, I doubt very seriously, although Mary's quite the kid, I doubt very seriously this just came out of her mouth. This suggests that she took some time and she, had, she constructed this. She put some things together, some amazing things that are going on. But who knows? So steeped in the scripture is she. She may have been able to peel off this song right off the top of her head. She knows the word of God. Some commentators on passages like this count up to 15 different allusions or direct quotes from the, from the Old Testament in her song. The girl knew the Bible. Almost every line. You could, you could have chapter and verse for something that she said. Mary got struck and out came the Bible. Oh, oh, for such a spirit. The merciful song of Mary. The good Dr. Luke continues his orderly account. He moves us now from blessing to singing in view of God's mercies. She's tasted the mercy of God and gone, wow. You can't do much better than that. The beautiful scripture-saturated, God-centered song of mercy. 
Here's her theme. Themes right up, right up front there. Verse 46. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That's her prayer. My soul magnifies the Lord. Not one of the major English translations repeat the same word. My soul exalts. My soul glorifies. My soul praises. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. There's tumbling all over themselves to try to get there to that word. Any one of those is great. My soul magnifies, it exalts, it glorifies, it praises, it proclaims the greatness of my Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Try that this weekend. Try that. Ask the Lord to see his mercy, that your soul might magnify him. Not, not because he's small and needs to be made bigger. No, no, no. It's a telescope. It's not a microscope. It's, it's bringing that which is large, that, that which appears to be small, into sharper focus. My soul magnifies the Lord. Why, Mary? Why does your soul magnify the Lord? Well, she's got personal reasons, and then she's got generational reasons. Watch this. Watch this. Her personal mercies cause her to well up with praise. For he, verse 48, he's looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on, generations will call me blessed. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. But notice what Mary does. Mary folds her thanksgiving for all that God has done for her into a, an exclamation of who God is. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. He, he has now sent this message to generations who will now call Mary blessed, just like you and I are doing right now. We're, fulfillment of, we're fulfilling scripture right now. We are blessing Mary. And we're that generation that's going to hand the baton off to the next generation and continue to bless this dear woman. God designed it that way. For he is mighty. He's done great things for me and holy is his name. Try praying that. Yes, bring your cares and concerns to him. Yes, allow your prayers to say I, I, I and me, me, me. But if that's all it is and it's not enveloped in who God is, here's a perfect model for how to pray how to sing. Holy is his name. Can you believe he's done something for me? That's really what she's doing right there. I am the weakest of the weak, she says, but God is strong. What a perfect model. So she, her soul magnifies for personal reasons, but now watch. Watch this move that Mary makes in her song to move from the personal and expand it because she knows herself to be part of something bigger. Oh, how we need that message today. I'm here to tell you, and I'm sorry if I have to tell you this, you are not the center of the universe. I know it sounds, duh. Do you know how many times I've confessed to the Lord in the last eight months for thinking of myself as the center of the universe? Now, I've never woken up in the morning and say, honey, you, you know who you're living with, right? Center of the universe. Kiss my ring. No. It's way more subtle than that. Lord, do you know how much I'm suffering here? Lord, do you know how little respect I'm getting? Lord, do you know what I really should be doing? Lord, do you know? And you, you have one of those moments. Whoa, you, you really do think you are the center of the universe. Mary moves from me, me, me to this, verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him 
from generation to generation. Oh my goodness, this girl is leading us in song. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now she's going to unpack this. Watch how, watch how beautifully this is constructed. Verse 51, how has he done this, Mary? How has he shown his mercy to generation after generation? Verse 51, he's shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts. Verse 52, he's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble state. Verse 53, he's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. Get used to that because it's a central theme of Luke in his gospel. The exalting of the humble and the humbling of the exalted. Luke, more than any other gospel writer, has his eye on the poor and the broken and the outcast. Not even close. And here is a lead example of that in the voice of Mary. He's going to scatter the proud. So if you're sitting here today and you're struggling with pride, hear Mary sing over you. Repent of your pride because you're in danger of being scattered by the Lord. Watch, he brings down the mighty from the throne. Those who are wielding power in the world today, be they tyrant or anyone else who think they're the center of the universe, their day is coming. Some of us might hope that it would be sooner than later. But God has his ways, and he has his plan, and he has his people where he has his people at this point in time. But they, if they continue to deny him, and inflate themselves, they are coming to an end. Their throne will one day come down. And what will happen? Those who are humble, those who are down and out, those who are broken, they could fill in a lot of blanks here, but it really starts to get me in trouble. Those who understand who they are before a holy God, they are the ones who will be lifted up. There's going to be a lot of stunned expressions, I think, on the day of the Lord when he comes. And people we don't even know who have been laboring in unknown places are going to go to the head of the line. And the celebrities whose books we buy I'm not suggesting that they won't be in but God is doing an awful lot of shaking up. He has and will continue to do so. I don't know if you follow the news or not, but celebrity pastors are dropping like flies. You don't trifle. You don't trifle with a holy God. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes of all time, it's hanging everywhere I work. There is a kind of happiness and joy that makes you serious. You can put that on my tombstone if you want, because it, it very much describes my way of thinking of the world. Pastor, you're way too serious. You know why I'm serious? Because I'm filled with a happiness and a joy that the world knows nothing about. You don't trifle. You don't domesticate a holy God. Mary, the teenage girl, didn't. 
He filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. Mark it well. If you're after the things of the world, Black Friday or Cyber Monday, there are good buys to get. I spent some money. I readily confess it. I do. I did. Not evil in and of itself. I'm not saying that. But if the accumulation of goods and wealth to make you a name and to give you an identity is how you're rolling, please, please, I plead with you. Take Mary's words to heart and even this afternoon consider whether or not you're on a dangerous path. Here's her soaring summary. He, verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. I'm undone by that phrase in verse 54, in remembrance of his mercy. I, I tried to think about this yesterday. I tried to spend some time with it. God reminded himself of his mercy. Think about that for a second. In remembrance of his mercy, God doesn't forget. How sweet are these words? God remembered that he was merciful. God remembered that he had a covenant with his people. And we've talked about who the people of God are as we worked our way through Romans 9, 10, and 11. He's helped. This is what Mary's concluding. This is where his song ends. He has helped his people. His, his plan is being fulfilled. He has come. And he's done that because he remembered God will not forget his people. So when you're crying and your pillow at night is saturated, wondering whether or not God is there and whether or not he has forgotten you, he hasn't. He remembers his mercy as he spoke to his fathers. All the way back to Abraham, look at what it says, and to his offspring forever. 2020, Staten Island, we're in the line of Abraham. We are the generation to the next generation. We are part of that seed forever. The people of God that he's pouring out his mercy upon as he remembers it in the giving of his covenant way back there in Genesis chapter 12. The whole of God's promised plan is summed up in this passage anyway in one word, mercy. Not judgment, not condemnation, not wrath, like many of us, self-included, walk around thinking. The plan of God out of the mouths of babes is marked by one word, mercy. Mercy, which is God's goodness and compassion reaching out to the weakness and suffering of his children. That's what God's about. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Advent is. And that's what the coming of our Lord and Savior is going to be as well. God remembers his mercy. God remembers his people, the offspring of Abraham. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And I leave you with this. If you're like me, and you read that verse 50, and you hear that again, you wonder how in the world could mercy and fear go in the same sentence? If he is merciful as you've described, Pastor, how in the world does it fit then that I ought to fear him? You've heard me speak an awful lot about the fear of the Lord. This past summer, 
looking at the wisdom books, we talked a lot about the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And you know that I, I've taught you over the years that the fear of the Lord is a continuum. On one end of the continuum is fear as you understand the word fear. If you are apart from Christ, if you continue to reject this holy God, you ought to be afraid. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a difficult message to preach. I readily admit that. But watch this. Even that message is a message of mercy. Why? Because it's a warning. Come in. Escape. Get away from. Come down this continuum and watch the fear of the Lord be transformed to the awe-inspired worship of the Lord. That's what's going on right here. Blessed are those who know the mercy of God. What do they do? They worship. They rejoice. They're humbled at the awesomeness of Almighty God and His holiness. That's the fear of the Lord that's being described here. So mercy and the fear of the Lord go perfectly together in the same sentence. When I come to understand the degree to which God has been merciful to me, then one great fear drives out all lesser fears. Would you write that down? I wrote it down because I'm struggling with more, more than one fear right now in my life. And I needed this message as much as you did, if not more. There is a great fear that drives out all lesser fears. I'm praying that for you. I'm praying it in my own heart that the fear of the Lord would drive out my fear of man my fear of dying, my fear of getting sick, my fear of leaving my wife and daughter, my fear of not seeing you again. Those are lesser fears that God desires to drive out of my life by replacing it with the fear of the Lord. I am praying, and I promise you, I am praying the same thing for you, that we would be a community that's marked by the humbling awe-inspiring worship of a perfectly holy God who is also good and compassionate in a word who's also merciful. Our father Abraham knew it. Our sister Mary knew it. Do you know it? We will ask you to help us answer that question, dear God. We will ask you in this glorious Advent season to help us answer the question, yes, we do know your mercy, and yes, it does lead us, however haltingly, however imperfectly, to worship. Father, I ask very simply that in the weeks to come, indeed in the hours to come, would you give us a vision of your mercy, would you give us a vision of how awesome you are? Remind us, Father, that video games are not awesome. People are not awesome. My favorite football team is not awesome. You alone are awesome. Please fill us with a sense of that, dear God, because only you can give it. It's not something that we can muster up on our own. So I pray that you would give us that Christmas present, 
you would give us the presence of yourself and a capacity to see your mercy and to respond to it with awe-inspired worship. But we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Amen and amen.